0: We're going to be today in the book of uh, Acts, chapter 27. Uh, As you may know and may have been uh, recognizing as we've been making our way through, particularly uh, the last 10 or 15 chapters, you you sort of have these flowing events that are taking place over this extended period of time. some cases, it's a couple of chapters worth of material um, or even more than that. Uh, You remember we were looking at how Paul made the decision to go down to Jerusalem, somewhere around chapter, I guess it was 20 or so, and and how just event after event flowed all the way to like chapter 26. And so uh, we're kind of in that section. And and today we're going to be in the final section of the book of Acts where Paul is going to make his trip to the city of Rome and some of the initial events that that take place there. So we have two more chapters uh, in our study of the book of Acts. I'm finding myself beginning to grow sad uh, because I feel like we're going to miss our friends. We're not going to be seeing them all the time each Sunday gathering together, um, but that's all right. We're going to make our way from here to the Old Testament, and we'll start hanging out with the prophet Nahum uh, and Habakkuk and, and people like that, um, so that should be fun too. So that being said, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for uh, the word. Lord, here we are a couple thousand years later, and you've blessed us with the ability to sit under the word. And so Father, uh, we wanna have hearts that are ready to receive. Lord, our minds might be elsewhere, maybe our hearts are elsewhere, cares of this world that we're dealing with, that it's just hard for us to put aside, Lord. We wanna do that now for uh, about an hour. We wanna receive from you. And so open our hearts, Minister by your Holy Spirit through your word. Challenge us, convict us, draw us, comfort us. Lord, you know exactly what we need through your word, maybe a little bit of all of those things. And so we ask you would do that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may, you may remember a key verse that we began our study of the book of Acts sort of set an outline of the book, and that was chapter 1, verse 8. Does that sound familiar? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Don't look up yet. (laughs) Right? You remember that that address at the very least? Well, that's what it said. Now you can put it up now. It says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, the end of the earth. And that pretty much is the outline of the book of Acts, chapters 1 through 7. Ministry is primarily in Jerusalem, chapters 8 through 12, ministry is primarily in Judea and Samaria, outside of Jerusalem, and then from then on, it pretty much begins to chronicle the Apostle Paul, and it's going to the uttermost parts of the earth, or to the ends of the earth. And for the average Jew that was in the city of Jerusalem in the first century, Rome was the uttermost parts of the earth, the end of the earth. It was almost like, is Rome even real, the things we hear about Rome? And we have seen in our study that Paul had a great desire to get to Rome. The city of Rome, as you can imagine, was the capital of the empire of Rome. Everything ran through Rome. Officials ran through Rome. People ran through Rome. Merchants ran through Rome. And if Paul could get to Rome, and if he could talk to the people of Rome and and have the opportunity to present the gospel of Jesus Christ in Rome, people might get saved there. People will get saved there. And the gospel will go forth even further as the people take that with them as they go. Rome was about 1,400 miles away from Jerusalem. And the average person was never going to get there. But Paul desperately desired to do so. And we saw that since Acts chapter 21, Paul has been a prisoner of Rome. It started in Jerusalem. There was a hubbub of sorts, uh, and they finally arrested Paul really just to calls calm on the streets of Jerusalem. And from there, he went from Jerusalem, he went to Caesarea, he had trial after trial after trial, sometimes before these officials, sometimes before this governor and that governor and this king. And one time after another, Paul is explaining himself, this is what I was doing and why I was doing it. And you know what, let me tell you my story. And he would explain his uh, conversion and how he came to Christ. And eventually, Paul realized, I'm getting the runaround. Nobody wants to make a decision. Everybody wants to placate somebody else. And I'm the one who gets thrown in a cell or into house arrest somewhere just waiting for the next time and the next time and the next time. Finally, Paul exercised his right, and he said, I appeal to Caesar. Now, I imagine a lot of you that have been here, you're like, yeah, we know. (laughs) We've been here for the entire study. But perhaps some of you uh, are not familiar with it. Uh, But here is Paul now. He's going to go to Rome. We've watched Paul go through three missionary journeys. This is going to be Paul's fourth missionary journey, except the, the, the little asterisk that we put by it is this. Um, somebody else was paying Paul's trip because Paul was a prisoner aboard their ships. And so all the other ones, he had to have little bake sales and stuff to raise money to go. This particular one, uh, Rome was going to pay. And so I want to share with you a little map. There you go. Uh, that's the Mediterranean Sea there in blue. In the bottom right corner, uh, roughly, is where you're gonna find Jerusalem and Caesarea. In the top left corner, you see the boot. We all know the boot. We've learned it in third grade, that's Italy. Uh, Or Italy, as my mom used to say, um, dropped the A for some reason. Uh, And that's where Rome is in the top left corner. So Paul's gonna get from that black dot in the bottom corner all the way up into the top left corner. Now I know you can't read the words, and, and I don't typically throw this up there you to read the words. It's really just to give you a sense of sort of the places that we're going to talk about. And as we'll see, and as Kyle alluded to in his time of prayer, uh, it became a very perilous journey for the Apostle Paul and everybody else that was on this ship or these ships that Paul was going to be on. And so we'll, we'll spend some time, we'll look at it. There, there's a unique thing that occurs here in the, the chapter, chapter 27 and chapter 28, and that is once more Paul, uh, Luke writer of the book, he shifts from, and they went and did this, and they went and did that, and he shifts once more to, and we did this, and we went through that. And so we will discover as we go that Luke is back on a journey with the Apostle Paul. We also discover something about Luke and his style of writing is how incredibly precise Luke is going to be in this writing. He's using nautical terms. He's describing Uh, ways of sailing that the the sailors would have used to deal with certain circumstances. He's naming cities. Uh, He's kind of going along the bus route, so to speak. And historically, they've gone back and like, you know, this guy is exactly on. And that leads credence to what we're studying is the word of God. There are no mistakes. Luke knows what he's talking about, and he's very precise and careful. It's almost as if he had a notebook and he was jotting these things as we go. But I can't imagine he did because there were times where they almost died out on the ship. And I can't imagine he's in a corner jotting notes. But one way or another, uh, Luke is very, very precise here. We're going to see 17 different places mentioned uh, in our study today. All those red dots are places that are going to be mentioned. And if you can kind of see that thin little line, that's tracking uh, Paul and Luke and the others as they're making their way again from Caesarea all the way to the city of Rome. Amazingly precise. So let's jump in. That's kind of our intro to the next couple of studies that we're going to have. We're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 27. It says, now, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking on a ship of the Adrematium, or something like that, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, and he put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days, and we arrived with difficulty off of Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. All right, so revolution, change your life material? Like Bible study memory verses for next time you're in traffic and you're, you know, you're struggling with frustration or whatever? Not really. And so you have to wonder, like, why is this in here? Why, why are we getting, why don't you just tell me? It was, it was hard. And then he ended up in Rome, you know. But he goes step by step by step. Well, I think the Lord has something for in us, uh, in it for us. He begins the chapter by informing us again, reminding us again where the previous chapter essentially ended. And you recall in the previous chapter, actually two chapters back, Acts chapter 25:12, Paul was getting the runaround, and he finally said, "I appeal to Caesar." And Festus there, he says, well, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. You recall that then it would be Festus's responsibility to have to write some kind of a letter to explain why he's sending this man to the Caesar. And he didn't have anything to write. And so he called in Agrippa, they had another hearing, that together they kind of got together, they decided, what are we going to write uh, for why we're sending this man to the Caesar? And so that's where we pick up now that he had to go to Rome, and so, as it says in the verse, when the decision was made that they should sail for Italy, they sent Paul, or they delivered Paul, as well as some other prisoners, not necessarily religious prisoners, just other prisoners, to a centurion of the Augustan court. Remember, a centurion was an official over 100. A Roman soldier, over 100 people, were told his name his name is Julius. This is the sixth different centurion that we're introduced to in the New Testament. And every time we're introduced to one, you just see it's a person of great character. So that seems like that was an obligation or a requirement is you had to be a good guy, a person of good character. Julius is. Now the common practice for this cohort was not to have their own police vehicle or soldier ship or anything like this. The common practice was to pay the fare on a merchant ship. So this merchant ship's going there, hey, I need to reserve you know, seven beds. I got five prisoners, two soldiers, or whatever the number might be. And so that's what they do here. And as we learned that in verse two, and embarking in a ship of Adrametium, we'll call it that, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. Now, Adrametium is located way up by the area of Philippi in Europe area. And so this ship was from there, went down to northern Africa, and is going back there. Notice it says it was going to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. You may remember in our study when Paul was about to leave the area of Philippi and Ephesus and all of those cities that he, abor- he boarded a ship and went from town to town to town to town. That's what they did, and that's what this one is going to do. It's going to hit all of these ports The way I think about it is like a bus stop, and the bus is just going to go from stop to stop to stop. You wish it wouldn't. You just want to get to your location, but that's the way it works. And so this one was going to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. Today, we think of Asia like China, Japan. Then that was uh, Asia Minor, what they today what we would call Turkey, that particular region. And we're also told in verse 2 that another fella is with them, a guy by the name of Aristarchus. Notice Luke says, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy. Verse two, he says, and so we put to sea. And so on this trip with the Apostle Paul, at the very least are two friends, Aristarchus and Luke. We have no indication that they were ever arrested. So it seems like they were granted permission to come with the Apostle Paul. Or maybe they bought their own way on the ship. Who knows exactly? But they're there with the Apostle Paul. They're going to support the Apostle Paul, even though he is uh, a prisoner. First place they're going to go, verse 3 tells us, is the city of Sidon. You've heard of Tyre and Sidon. Sidon is located just about 70 miles north of Caesarea. So they get on the boat. They sail for about 70 miles, and they put in at the city of Sidon. Notice verse 3 tells us, and Julius treated Paul kindly. Paul's a prisoner. But Paul's not a convicted prisoner, remember? Paul is still in this whole process. He's appealed to the Caesar. Remember the last thing they said in the previous chapter, if this guy didn't appeal to Caesar, we could let him go. And so it's either for that reason or because Paul demonstrated he was you know, a guy that could be trusted. Julius said, look, I'm going to give you some free time here in the city. Go find some friends or whatever, but I need you back here tomorrow morning or later this afternoon because we're, we're taking off then. Can I trust you? And Paul's like, of course you can trust me. And you could. And so Paul, he went and it said, uh, he went and visited with some friends. He was cared for by those friends. Later that night, the next day, whatever it might be, they left Sidon, and they put in on their journey once more, headed to ultimately to Rome. And so we see in verse 4 that putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, your version might say under the shelter of Cyprus, I'll talk about that in a minute, because the winds were against us. Now the lee, it refers to just that, the shelter, that's why a lot of our versions put that in there, the shelter of Cyprus. The idea is this, is that the island of Cyprus would have been on the boat's left-hand side or the port side, and it would serve as a shelter from the winds. And so during this time of year, we're probably in late August or into uh, September, The winds would be coming up out of northern Africa, and it would affect the boat. And so what they would do is they would sail as close as they can to this island and have the island between them and the winds coming up out of Africa, and it would protect them a little bit. And that's what Luke's describing. And so this is an example of the real preciseness of Luke. He's not a sailor. But he's using these terms, he's describing these things, he's not just making this story up, this is what happened. And no doubt he heard some guys, we're on a sail on the lee of Cyprus. And he's oh, we'll write that down, that's gonna be good. And he gets that there into his study. So we have a little map here, show you Cyprus. There's Cyprus, uh, underneath the word Cyprus, there's you, you would be able to see an island if you were a little bit closer and so that protected them. Verse 5 goes on, and when he, we had sailed across the open sea, they get past Cyprus, now they're back out there in the middle of the water, they sailed uh, across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. Now, we've talked about each of those places. Uh, Cilicia, Pamphylia, and Lycia, they're all regions, all right? And you can kind of see some of their names are listed up there on that particular map. Underneath that little red dot there, that's the region of Lycia, and that's where you would find the city of Myra. And so they're sailing along the coast now uh, of Turkey or Asia Minor. All right, Verse 6 will go on to tell us that there they disembark. They get off that ship because that ship is going to go up and it's going it's to cut a right and go... Uh, to the eastern side of Italy and Greece and all of that. They're going to go to the western side of Italy. They're trying to hit Rome, so they got to get on a different boat. And they're going to get on a ship, verse 8. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria. Where's Alexandria, class? It's in Egypt. Oh, it was a big-time city in Egypt. It was like the great libraries of Egypt and, and all this kind of stuff. If you saw the movie National Treasure... Remember when she discovers all that gold type of stuff? And she said, the scrolls from Alexandria. Well, that's it. Northern Africa. It was one of the, we talked about this here. (laughs) Disappointed. It was one of the biggest cities of the ancient world. Everybody wanted to get to Alexandria to study. Um, So there was, this ship comes from Alexandria. We're going to learn it's a grain ship. It's a very, very large ship. And it's going back over to Rome to supply grain there. So northern Africa was the place where they got a lot of their, um, their grain to feed their particular people. This freighter, really, was a big ship. It's about 140 feet long, 35 feet wide, and 30 feet deep. All right, So it sits up on the water, 30 feet or so. Um, so you can think of all the stories or the, um, the levels that would be in that deck area there. This is a very big ship. A little bit later, in verse 37, we're going to learn that there's 276 people aboard this ship. So that's a lot of people. This is a cruise liner that is going. Verse 7 is going to tell us, We sailed slowly for a number of days, and we arrived with difficulty off Snidus, or Nidus. And as the, wor- the wind did not allow us to go further, so they sort of hit a wall they make the navigational decision that instead of continuing to go west, can we put that map up there with the black circle and the blue dot? So instead of continuing to go west toward Rome, they go immediately south to get underneath Crete. So, And it tells us the reason why uh, is in verse 7, as the wind did not allow us to go any further. They, they basically hit a wall of wind. So the wind had been blowing from the south, now it seems it's blowing from the west, and they're going head into it, and they can't get anywhere. And so they make the decision, keep that up a little bit longer, I love it. Instead of continuing to go west, they go downward, you can see that, and they get underneath the island of Crete. And now Crete becomes a what to them class, a lee to them. Isn't this fun? All right, we're learning some things here. And it becomes a lee to them. It protects them from the winds. And then they're going to continue to make their way that way. Hopefully the winds will change. They'll be safe. They'll be good. Uh, So now they're below the island of Crete. It says there, oh, I I thought you knew it, Jay. It says it right here In, in verse seven, we sailed under the lee of Crete. So you're not so impressive. Uh, But I do love you very much. It says in verse 8, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens. That sounds nice, right? They came to a place called Fair Havens on the south side of the island, pretty much in the middle from left to right on the south side of the islands. Um, The problem we're going to learn is this, Fair Havens was anything but a fair haven, I read one commentator, I liked the way he said it. He said, Fair Havens must have been named by the city's chamber of commerce who were trying to trick people into coming there because it wasn't very fair. Now I will say, for the record, this is what that same city looks like today. Do we have a picture of that? Doesn't that look nice? Yeah, it's beautiful. It didn't look like that then, all right? It was a dump of a place then. It was not where people wanted to be, and it was especially not where people wanted to be for an extended period of time. Today, yes. Then, no. So let's pick up again. Verse 9, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, there was actually a season called the dangerous season, and so that's where they are, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Luke's referencing the Day of Atonement, which takes place late September early October. This particular year, 59 AD, it took place on October 9th. So we're right around the beginning, first week or into the second week of the month of October. And he says the voyage was now dangerous. Even the fast was over. And so Paul, the prisoner, advises the people running this ship. He said, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot, the guy navigating the ship, and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete. That's on the western side of the island of Crete. Remember, uh, Fairhaven's is sort of in the central portion of southern Crete. Facing both southwest and northwest, and they could spend the winter there. All right, so Luke begins to explain to us that they don't want to get there. Again, this is the dangerous season. The dangerous season was from mid-September to mid-November, so they still have some time, but they're in the dangerous season. The What I called the impossible season was from mid-November all the way to February or March or so. That's the winter season. And the, the ship people, the, the sailors and all of those folks, like, we do not want to stay here all the way into April or maybe into March if we're lucky. So we got to get out of here. So let's take the chance and go. Now, I imagine people are standing around. They're talking about this. What do you think we should do? I think we should do this. And Paul is listening to this stuff. And Paul is Paul. Paul has some thoughts. Paul likes to share his particular thoughts. And Paul says, Sirs, (laughs) sirs, because his hands are bound together, he says, I perceive this is a bad idea. And they're like, Who are you? What's your background? I'm a teacher. Well, then you don't know anything. All right, go stand over there. And so uh, they, as it says there, they decide not to listen to Paul, but instead, uh, the centurion decides to listen to Uh, The sailors, he listens to the owner of the boat, the guy that's driving this particular boat. Again, that same commentator, he was on a roll this week. He said this, sailors don't take sailing advice from landlubbers. Uh, And that seems to be the case. So verse 11, the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship. Verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix. I think we have a a map to show you relatively how close these two are to one another. I think it's something like 40 miles uh, away. It doesn't look like that on the map, but not very, very far. Let's give it a shot, let's try. As you look at verse 13, the next morning or so, it says now when there was a south wind that blew gently. You know, it's, it's gonna be great, this is gonna be perfect. Um, You know, the gods are with us. Some of them probably would have said something to that effect. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor. And they sailed along Crete. They pulled up the anchor, sailed along close to the shore. But don't you know it? Verse 14. Soon, a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. We know northeasters or nor'easters around here from the snowstorms we get. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. Now that refers to you have the ship and then they would pull along with them a small little lifeboat kind of thing behind them as well. And so that's what it's referring to when it says we secured the ship's boat. Verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Talk about all that in a moment. Then fearing that they would run aground on the surges, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. And since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. And so try to really picture the hopelessness of the situation that even the sailors themselves, they've been through these kinds of things before, but all hope of being saved was abandoned. They left the fair havens thinking, eh, what could go wrong? Well, now we know (laughs) what could go wrong. Uh, A nor'easter could blow up. I I like the way the King James and the New King James word it. They call it a Euroclydon. Anybody have that in their Bibles? A Euroclydon? I always thought that was like a like a monster or or something. You know, like like uh, the Loch Ness monster. You know, one of those kinds of things. Uh, But the Euroclydon is a tempestuous wind. Uh, Some versions will actually use the word. Hurricane. These guys are sailing into a hurricane. It was a beautiful sunny day with a light, southerly, gentle wind that was blowing through, and now they are in the midst of a hurricane. 276 people aboard this ship all quickly realizing this was a bad idea. We should have just stayed there in fair havens. What could go wrong? Well, now you know. Things got so bad fighting the wind. Look at verse 15. The decision was made to stop fighting and just to let it take us where it's going to take us. Because, you know, as they're fighting uh, and all of that, the ship's no doubt struggling against that, the potential that it's going to break up. And so the sailors make the decision, we just got to give up and just see where it takes us. And so they begin to do. Notice in verse 17. They begin to get nervous. It seems it's taken them a distance because now they're afraid they're gonna run aground on the Surtis. There's an area of land called the Sirtis Sands. Other places I've seen it's called the Sirtis Sound. It's, in, it's, north, it's uh, in the Mediterranean, north of Africa. It's some low, I don't want to call them lowlands, but uh, it's not very deep water in certain parts there, north of Africa. And it became known as a ship graveyard because a lot of ships would be blown off course, they would end up there, and then they would just get beat up by the, uh, by the winds or whatever it might be, and they have nowhere to go, uh, and they eventually, they would die, the ships would be breaking up. And so these sailors are now afraid, that's where we're gonna go. Remember, they just said, let the wind take us, and now they're realizing we're probably going down there, we're gonna die, we gotta start to fight again. They haven't given up, they will eventually, but look at verse 16, they decide to run under the lee, Of a small island. The island is called Calda. All right, we'll try that old technique again. Maybe that'll protect us from the winds. It says uh, there that they hoist up the ship. That's also in verse six. Less drag. Uh, Then they'll also be able to have this ship, I guess, in case they might need it a little bit later on. Notice what it says there. It says that we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. That means Luke is involved. So the, the idea that I get from that is the sailors are like, look, all hands on deck. I don't work here. You do today. Let's go. Everyone's at work here. We're all going to die. Um, that's the seriousness of the situation. Even the passengers are pressed into service. Verse 17 talks about how they took cables and they, I don't know who did this, but they went underneath the ship and back around and tied them together. And they did a whole bunch of these cables to gird the ship or undergird the ship That's a method that is called frapping. And so these guys here, these sailors, they exercise that. They're going to tie the boat together because no doubt it was threatening to break up. Verse 17 says they lowered the gear. Some of your versions might say they struck the sails. And so they're now going to try to go a particular direction with the sails. They don't want to go any closer to the ship graveyard, that Sirtis Sound or Sirtis Sands. And so with the the sails down, now wherever the wind's taking them is where they're going to go. They're going to use their technique and their skills, but now they're moving here. Look at uh, the next one, verse 18, that we were violently storm-tossed. And so the next day they begin to jettison the cargo, the, the, uh, the furniture, larger things, cargo that they were looking, merchants were bringing to other places, Anything that had weight, throw it off. I imagine they're bringing on a lot of water. The ship's getting a little bit lower. It's getting heavier and heavier, and they just got to throw off whatever they can to cause them to bob a little more on top of the water. Um, Here, we look at verse 19. A few days later, it says they throw off the ship's tackle. They throw the ship's tackle overboard. Um, So they're doing whatever they can. To lighten the ship. Verse 20. Now, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Notice our being saved. Even Luke is included in those that think, yeah, we're done. You know, it was a good life that we lived here, but it is over. Uh, even Luke is hopeless. There's at least one guy on ship, either who wasn't or wouldn't be hopeless, and that's the Apostle Paul. And so let's pick up with him, verse 21. And so since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and he said, Men, you should have listened to me. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Thanks, buddy. You should not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and this loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And he said to me, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as I have been told. However, we must run aground on some island." And so again, here's Paul. First off, he he had the nerve earlier to stand up and say, well, if I could weigh in, uh, I don't think we should go. And they're like, no, you can't weigh in. Be quiet. Well, here now he stands up again. uh, And he begins and he says, men, you should have listened to me. I think that's funny. Um, None of us like that when people say things like that. But I, I think Paul's point is going to be maybe something more like this. This is what I was referring to. But Don't worry. And then he goes on to talk more. So it's not like, this is what I referred to, and you're getting what you deserve. That's not where he's going here. He's not just sort of proving that he was right. But he begins by saying here, uh, men, you should have listened to me. The second thing he says to them, notice, is take heart. He urges them, in fact, to take heart. The idea is he pleads with them. He begs with them. Look, I know you're all hopeless. Don't be. Take heart. And here's why you're going to take heart. He says here that the ship is going to be destroyed, but none of us are going to lose our lives. Now, of course, the entire purpose of this ship was to transport merchandise from one place to the other and make money. And so forget about that. Right now, we're just worrying about staying alive. And so he says to him, look, the ship's going to be destroyed, but don't worry. Cheer up. We're all going to make it, he says to him here. Now, here's a thing I think is interesting. Earlier, back in verse 10, Paul addressed the crew, and he told them what he thought. Sirs, I, I perceive we shouldn't go here. And at that time, everybody ignored him. Here, however, after this storm, or in the midst of this storm, the people are interested in what Paul has to say. And I think that's a pretty significant thing that we're seeing there. When there was a south gentle wind that was blowing... Nobody was looking to Paul for advice. Now that they're in the midst of a storm, they're looking to Paul for advice. And I think you're going to find the same thing in your life as well. When everything is going perfectly for your friends, they don't want to really necessarily hear about your faith. They're not that interested in your faith. They don't even need, in their minds, your faith. But when the storms come, then they want to look for those that have weathered the storm and how people have weathered the storm and then suddenly they become interested in what it is that you have to say and so paul here is uh he had said earlier look i think it's a bad idea i don't think paul earlier was saying look god showed me this is a bad idea when he said that back in verse 12 or so i think paul was just looking at the circumstance looks pretty cloudy It's getting kind of late. I've been on ships before. I don't think it's a good idea that we sail. I just think Paul realized that or he recognized that or reasoned that. Here, however, I think Paul is absolutely certain. And the reason why is because Paul received a vision. Paul, it says, he tells us that an angel of the God whom he served came and spoke to him. Verse 23, this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and to whom and whom I worship, and the angel said to me a few things. Number one, he said to Paul, "Do not be afraid." First thing he says to Paul is, "Do not be afraid." Second thing he says to Paul is, "You must stand before Caesar," which means is Paul going to die out here on this ship? Uh, unless Caesar comes out there too, uh, no. All right, so he's got to get out there. He's got to get to Caesar and speak to Caesar and testify to Caesar. And so Paul could take a deep breath and realize, yes, the circumstance is pretty bad, but I'm going to get through this circumstance because the Lord has promised me that I'm going to get through this particular circumstance. Now, Paul should have known that. Paul should have known that I'm going to get to Rome one day and I'm going to stand before Caesar. The reason why, the Lord himself told Paul that. You remember back in Acts chapter 23, Paul was still in Jerusalem in a prison It seems he was pretty down. It begins and it says, take courage. Again, you may recall that I uh, pointed out at that time, that means like basically stop being afraid. When the Lord said to him, Paul, stop being afraid or take courage, uh, which tells us that Paul was afraid. But he says, take courage for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you will also do in Rome. So Paul had this promise from the Lord himself that he would get to Rome. So the entire time Paul was out there on this ocean vessel here, he should have known, I'm not dying. You all might die, but I'm not dying. I'm making it through. But it seems like Paul has forgotten that. Because here the angel comes to him again, and the first thing the angel says to him is, do not be afraid. The wording of that is just like the wording of take courage. So the wording of that is stop being afraid. Or I think some versions even say it this way, be afraid no more. And so again, Paul has become fearful. So he had the promise of God, but the circumstances, just like they do in our lives, caused him maybe to forget the promises of God for a moment or so. And he needed the reassurance. He needed the encouragement. Paul, you're going to get to Rome, and you're going to appear before Caesar. So it seems, even for a moment, Paul was among those that abandoned hope. It goes on, he says... The angel says to him, don't be afraid, you're going to stand before Caesar. Then notice this next part, verse 24. He says, and God has granted you all of those who sail with you. Uh, I'm going to add a word here. We don't like to add words to our Bible, but I, I do think it's fair, and I think it'll help us understand the context. Paul, I've granted your request. I think what this is telling us here is that Paul had been praying not only for himself, But as it says there, God has granted you all those who sail with you. That Paul was praying for Luke, and he was praying for Aristarchus, and he was praying for the sailors, and he was praying for Julius, and he was praying for the soldiers. He was praying for everybody aboard this ship that they would be saved, that we would make it through, God bring us through, not just for himself, but for everyone. And it tells us here that God granted Paul that request. I think that says a lot about Paul's character. Paul could have prayed, Lord, let all the soldier people die so I can get out of here. And when I get to Rome, I can be a free man. But he doesn't. He prays for all of their lives. He's been with them now for two or three months. Perhaps has even built a relationship with them. So Paul then, he says in verse 25 to the people he's speaking with there on the ship, he says, take heart, men. He says, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Now, back in verse 22, he urged them to take heart. Now he tells them why they should take heart. And I think that's important. And so, you know, like we could easily say, cheer up. Everything will be fine. Not always. No, not always. What's the reasoning for that? Paul gives the reasoning for that. He says, because the Lord has given me the assurance of all of our safety. And so Paul entrusted himself to the word and the character of God. God told me this. I believe God, and so therefore I know this. And you could all take heart, and you could all be at ease, because I know God to be true. I believe these things. Now, unbelievers, and essentially Paul is saying to them, and you can believe them too. What Paul is doing is modeling his faith. He's walking out his faith, and he says, you guys can watch me. You know what? Walk along with me as we trust God in the things that he had said here. What a tremendous shift has gone on. It's almost as like there's no more storm, right? Like you forgot all about the storm and the Eurocliden and the tempestuous wind and all of that stuff and trying to get under certain lees and dropping the, the gear and throwing off the tackle. You almost forgot about that as we're looking at this particular situation. As we continue to go forward next week, you're going to see the storm is still going on. It's going to go on for another couple of weeks. But somehow the Apostle Paul has been able to gather the attention of all of these folks and a shift has taken place. There's sort of this peace that is beginning to settle on the people as the the Apostle Paul ministers. And I pointed it out earlier, when everything was going wonderfully well, nobody wanted to listen to Paul. But now that the storm has hit, everyone's interested in what the Apostle Paul has to say. You may have family members and friends and children and people in your life that you're ministering to that aren't really interested in what you have to say. But when the going gets rough for them, they seek you out. I remember my wife and I, when we were in high school, she had a bunch of friends that rented a beach house. And so we were down there for a particular day and we had become Christians and we trying to walk with the Lord and stuff. But she was still friends with these folks and they're still partying and, and things like that, high school kind of stuff. And they weren't really interested in what it is we had to say until there was some kind of crisis that took place. Someone cut themselves and was bleeding and dying. uh was dying, but there was this crisis. And the first name they called out was for Greg and Robin because they knew we would be able to step in and help them in that particular situation. And so people might think you're an idiot, but they're observing you, they're watching you, and they know where they need to go when their situation becomes hopeless. And so they go to the Apostle Paul. They listen to the Apostle Paul. Paul says, I have faith in God. I appreciate the way other versions say it because I think it's a little closer to the original. The original is a little more, I believe God. That's it. Not just sort of, I have this faith. Yeah, I have faith in God. You know, this kind of generic thing. I believe God. God said it. I know God, who he is. I know what his character is. I trust him, and I'm going to walk in that belief. Paul trusted God, and he was inviting these sailors to trust God with him because there was nothing else they could trust. They couldn't trust the weather. They couldn't trust the weather maps. They couldn't trust the centurion. He'll know what to do. They couldn't trust the sailor or the pilot or the skills of the sailors. None of those types of things. They couldn't trust the lee. If we can get underneath that particular city, we'll be fine. There was nothing they could trust. Their circumstances had proven that. The only thing that Paul could trust, I put that in quotations, is God himself. And Paul cast himself upon the Lord. Everyone else was abandoning hope. Paul was steadying his hope upon the Lord and he stopped feeling fearing and instead he believed God now the storm was still very real but for Paul I'm not sure if it's good English God was more real and that's what he fixed his eyes on and that's what we need to fix our eyes on because we are going to face storms I, I doubt any of us are going to find ourselves in a physical storm like this perhaps you will maybe some of you have I know some of you have some backgrounds this young man here I'll tell you some stories when he was in the Navy But most of us are not going to face those sorts of circumstances here. But I know every one of us are going to face the metaphorical storm when everything is blowing against us and we're not quite sure if the Lord continues to be in it with us. Notice what Paul does here. There's some lessons that we could learn. And so what's the storm going to be? Your boss says, hey, Monday morning, I'd like to talk to you. And you're pretty certain it's because they're letting you go you spend that whole weekend trying to figure out how you're gonna survive and provide for your family. Or the doctor says, hey, your results are back, why don't you come in and we'll talk about it. And you gotta spend that whole next day or week or three months until the, the appointment that you can get scheduled to figure out what is going on. Or whatever it might be, you know the circumstance. I remember when these guys lost their kid in an airport in Germany or something or another and the Wi-Fi was down. And they didn't know where their kid, 14-year-old was for hours. Here, they're good parents. They're very, very good parents or whatever. And so you just don't know. And you're dealing with the circumstances. For, here's some lessons that we learned from Paul as he faced his storms. Number one, Paul remembered that God was with him. It's in the storms of life that we often begin to wonder if God is still with us. Remember that old little poem, the footprints poem? And the lady looks back, or the guy, I don't know, looks back and sees one set of footprints. Every time life was going crummy, God, why'd you leave me? I didn't leave you. That's when I was carrying you. He says there, it's a poem. Everyone's, oh, you know, it's a poem. Relax here. But the the point is true. It's when we are in the storms, we begin to doubt. Is God still with us? That's when the enemy begins to speak and say, man, you're not with, God's not with you anymore here. And yet, what do we have? We have an angel of God, the God whom Paul served, coming along and ministering to the Apostle Paul. There's great Bible verses, I think, to memorize that you can just, even if you just remember a couple of words from that verse, you can speak those words to yourself to remind yourself of the truth of God's word. I think in a circumstance like that, Jesus is closing words in the book of Matthew chapter 28. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Even with a cancer diagnosis, behold, I am with you always. Even when I'm going to lose my job, behold, I'm with my, you always. Even when I can't find my kid, I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. Remembering those words in those circumstances, that's what Paul essentially does here. So that's the first thing. He remembers that God is with him. The second observation, I think, application from Paul's example that we can take from this account is despite the difficulties, Paul recognizes that he still belongs. To the lord the lord's with him and he still belongs to him so you see that in verse 23 it says this very night there stood before me an angel of the god to whom i belong you know what's one of the the main main things that people the criticisms they bring about a god where if if this kind of suffering could happen where is the god where is a god that would allow such and such a thing to happen and i think in circumstances when we're suffering we're struggling and we're going through it, the enemy begins to speak, if you were really God's child, you wouldn't have to go through these things. Where's your God of love that he would allow you to deal with this? And we begin to doubt that we belong to him. Paul reminds himself of that truth. This angel reminds Paul of that truth, that he belongs to the Lord. Third thing I notice is this, Paul's example. in Paul's example, is not only he knew that God was with him, he hadn't abandoned him, that he belonged to the Lord, but even this, despite his present circumstances, that Paul continued to be on mission for God. And so, again, what did the angel say? He said, take part, Paul. You must stand, take heart, Paul. You must stand before Caesar to testify of Jesus. That was Paul's mission. That's what Paul had been dreaming of, I believe, because God birthed that in his heart for years now. And that's where he was going, and that's the mission he was on. And even though it doesn't seem like he's on that mission now, now we're, we're all going to die out here in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, the reality is this angel speaks that truth to Paul, is that you continue to be on mission. Now, granted, few of us, if any of us, have received a direct revelation from God regarding the mission that he has for us, correct? I, I imagine there's not a lot of us that have had that experience that the Apostle Paul had. And so I think the application is this, is that we can, each of us, be absolutely certain that God knows what our mission is. God knows how long you're going to be here on the earth, what it is you're going to do here on the earth, and when your last day here on the earth is going to be. We have a mission for God. Even though we don't know exactly what it is, he does. And we can rest in this fact. And I think this is so good, it's so key, it's so freeing we can rest in this reality, is that we will not be taken from this world one moment earlier than what God has ordained for us here on this earth. And so as long as God has work for us to do here on this earth, God will preserve us to do it. And that's an incredibly freeing idea, is that we are on mission for God. And finally, and this one here I think is helpful as well, it's found with, in verse 26, Remember, verse 26 said this simply, we must run aground on some island, some island. That tells me this, that the angel didn't tell Paul every single thing he needed to know. He didn't name the island. This is where you're going to go. You'll be on the northern side. You'll see when you get off. Make sure you turn right. Left's no good. He doesn't tell Paul every single thing he needs to know. He just says to him that you're going to run aground on some island. That tells me that there were still some areas of Paul's life in which he had to continue to operate, not knowing exactly what God was doing, but he had to continue to trust. And he does that. And I think it's the fourth example that we have here. So God has not abandoned us. We belong to him. We are on mission for him. And this last one here is we have to move forward in faith and trust. Paul does that. He went forward trusting, not having all of the details. Paul didn't move forward solely based on the revelation, but he moved forward solely based on the revealer. God, through this angel, comforted Paul, spoke truth into Paul, steadied the apostle Paul, and trusting God, he moved forward, even though we didn't have it all laid out for in front of him. And that's what the Lord calls us to do. And so we're facing cancer. We're facing a loss of a job. We're facing difficulties in our family. We're facing the things that every one of us are facing. I don't have all the answers, as to how these things are going to work out, and am I going to go into remission, or is this going to take me? I don't have all the answers to that. But he does, and I believe him, and I trust that he's going to be with me in the midst of it. He will never leave me or forsake me, and I can take a deep breath, and I can walk forward in peace in that. Paul had here, it's very clear, he had an unshakable confidence in God. And that confidence makes him a leader among men on that ship, doesn't it? He stands up a little bit taller amongst the rest of them and all of the eyes turn to him as he gets their attention. We live in a world that doesn't have a lot of answers, does it? People don't really even know what is going on with things. I don't know, what, what, I forget what they told me I'm supposed to say right now. People don't know. And what's the future? I don't know. And should I elect this guy? I don't know, nobody knows anything. And in the midst of it, we say, look, I don't either. I don't know what's going on here on this earth, but I can fix my eyes on heaven. And I am in relationship with a God who does know, and he brings me peace in the midst of it and a confidence in the midst of it, and that's what I'm walking in, and that's what you're observing, and that's what you're being drawn to. Not to me, but to him and the work that he's doing in me. That's a great privilege, I think, for each of us as followers of Christ. And it's the opportunity that he gives each of us to do. These guys here, they didn't believe in God, but they did believe in a man who did believe in God, and Paul. And so they're willing to entrust themselves to Paul for the rest of this journey. And when we come back together next week, we will see that happen. Exciting. You coming back? This is the to be continued that you get on your TV screen. Let's pray. Father, these are important lessons, Lord. A lot of it's uh, interesting information. That would have been a fun movie to watch, the storms and how they were navigating all of them. But Lord, we also know that beyond just being an interesting story, Lord, there's some important truth here for us. Because all of us will face circumstances that really do shake us and rock us and cause us to doubt and even cause us to forget what it is that we have previously learned. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bless the study of the word this morning. You'd bless each of these folks that have come, that are watching online, that have taken the time to consider your word. You'd cause the seed of this morning's word to go down deep into our hearts, Lord. We, we've already prayed, we've sought you, that you would till up our hearts, the dirt of our hearts, so to speak, so that seed would find good soil into which it could make a home and it could begin to germinate and come forth. And so, Lord, we're praying that the things we've considered today would indeed do that, that they would bear much fruit. And perhaps this week we'll deal with something. Maybe it'll be sometime in the coming months or year, but no doubt we will at some point face a storm. And we'll need to remember these lessons at that time, Lord. And so we thank you for your word. Bless it to our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name.